Good morning. Welcome this 17th Sunday after Pentecost to Queen Anne Lutheran Church. Whether you are a longtime member, a first-time visitor, or somewhere in between, we are glad to see you here. A few things, as always, before we begin our service. First, uh, we continue to follow COVID safety protocols, which means you may commune from your pew or receive at the front rails. If you choose the latter, we simply ask that you sanitize your hands beforehand and wait for the uh, ushers to direct you forward. Next is a gift to yourself and to your neighbor. We invite you at this time, please, to silence your phones. Third and finally, uh, we welcome all children, of course. If you wish to make use of childcare, we have it available upstairs. Our message this morning is deliberately provocative. It focuses on the second reading, an excerpt from the first chapter of 2 Timothy. Initially, I was going to call the sermon The Trouble with Timothy, but then I realized there is more to Timothy than merely trouble. There is treasure, if not tribbles. Sorry, I had to get that in for Kyle, a Star Trek fan. But what is this treasure, and is it truly worth the trouble? We'll find out in today's message. For now, I invite you please to rise for our gathering hymn, My God, How Wonderful Thou Art, number 863 in the Red Hymnal. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
In peace, in peace, let us pray to the Lord. For the reign of God and for peace throughout the world, for the unity of all, let us pray to the For your people here who have come to give you praise, for the strength to live your word, let us pray to the The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Benevolent, merciful God, when we are empty, fill us. When we are weak in faith, strengthen us. When we are cold in love, warm us, that with fervor we may love our neighbors and serve them for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated.
The first reading is from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Injustice and violence in the time leading up to the Babylonian exile moved this prophet to lament. How can a good and all-powerful God see evil in the world and seemingly remain indifferent? God answers by proclaiming that the righteous will live by faith. A reading from the book of Habakkuk. The oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not listen, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack, and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by their faith. Word of God, word of life.
The second reading is from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. This letter written to Timothy is a personal message of encouragement. In the face of hardship and persecution, Timothy is reminded that his faith is a gift of God. He is encouraged to exercise that faith with the help of the Holy Spirit. A reading from Paul's letter to Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did. When I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed then of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and for this reason I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. Word of God, word of life. Please rise for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 17th chapter. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just 
come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table. Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink, later you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves, we have done only what we ought to have done. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. I really want to get across two basic points today. First, that the Bible taken by itself is a dead letter. It only becomes the Word of God when the message of grace and salvation is proclaimed and received. In other words, the Bible becomes the living Word through proclamation. The second thing I want to emphasize is the content of this living Word. When I was in seminary, which as you know is a place where pastors train for several years to become ministers, students rather train this way, I can remember hearing the gospel from the pulpit only once. Once. It was a fellow student of mine who was talking about words Jesus may well have said after Lazarus emerged from the tomb. You were not meant for this, which is to say, death. Death is not the intention of God in terms of creation. Death will be overcome on the last day and has already in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So those are the two points that inform today's message. Is the treasure worth the trouble? Let's begin at the end. According to 2 Timothy 1.14, the last verse of our second reading, Paul instructs Timothy to guard the good treasure. Guard the good treasure that has been entrusted to him and to do so with the help of the Holy Spirit. This seems clear enough, right? Timothy, and by extension each of us, must protect the good news that God has communicated to us in Jesus Christ, something Martin Luther referred to as God's published mercy, presumably against false doctrine or teaching. That is our task. But what is this good news? Is it the message that Christ died for our sins? Or is it, as we read in verse 9 from our second reading, that God has embraced us in Christ from the beginning before the ages began? These are challenging questions a pastor asks himself at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. Yet beyond them all lies the hardest question, which is this. Is the treasure in First and Second Timothy worth the trouble. Let me explain what I mean by the question, is the treasure worth the trouble? 
First and Second Timothy, as you may know, are controversial. We know, thanks to a variety of clues in the text, that both were written toward the end of the first century by someone other than Paul. We also know that the church debated the inclusion of First and Second Timothy in the New Testament up through the end of the first century, roughly a hundred years after they were originally written. And we know that these two letters contain passages that cause some of us, including me, to stumble. Consider the effect, for example, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15 has had on Christian women throughout the centuries. Let a woman learn in silence and with full submission, its author declares, writing as the voice of Paul. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided she continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Women are to keep silent, and their purpose is childbearing after, of course, they have already brought sin into the world. So, keep silent. You are the source of evil, but you can be redeemed, women of this congregation, if you have children. <laughs> that's not the end of my message. There's more. Or consider, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm going to challenge that. Or consider how 2 Timothy 3.16, which says that all scripture is inspired, has been twisted into proof that the Bible contains within all of its 66 books not a single error since God wrote it. I remember speaking at a, at a uh, um, baccalaureate and uh, talking about the importance of doubt, which, among others, the prophet Habakkuk uh, certainly exemplifies. This made a lot of the pastors present at the event nervous. And so one of them, after I spoke, came up and in giving a New Testament uh, to each of the students who were present said, you must submit to this book. This is God's word for you. Every single word of it. Or consider finally some of the most corrupt leaders in world history as you hear 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 which says that we should pray and give thanks for kings and all who are in high positions. Should we, therefore, express our gratitude for someone like Vladimir Putin, a man of extraordinarily high position, who is nevertheless responsible for the death of innocent men, women, and children throughout the Ukraine? Now, for any thoughtful and reflective follower of Christ, which means each one of you. Each of these passages should give us pause, right? Is the good treasure in First and Second Timothy really worth the trouble? Or should we, as Martin Luther once advised, 
Stick to those books of the Bible like Romans, Galatians, 1 Peter, and Ephesians that most effectively lead us to Christ and salvation and teach us everything we need to know for the latter. Indeed, Luther, if he was caught on a desert island or if somebody was, he might say, if you could only choose a few books of the Bible, choose those books that lead you most clearly to Christ. Do First and Second Timothy do this, or do they not, in short, belong in the trash? I was going to have a prop where I dropped a Bible into the trash, but I thought that might be a bit much, <laughs> and I didn't want to get a call from the bishop. Now, obviously, as an ordained Lutheran pastor who has pledged fidelity to the Bible as the norm and guide of his faith, I am not, let me repeat this, I am not going to urge anyone to throw out 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, or any other writing of the New Testament. Even Luther, who famously referred to James as a letter of straw, as the literary junk mail of the New Testament, shrank, as the great Reformation historian Roland Bayton puts it, from demolishing the canon by excluding writings he considered unhelpful to ordinary readers. By canon here, we mean the set of established books we call scripture. Luther resisted uh, doing away with any part of it. <laughs> the Pope, the councils, and the canon law might go, Baton says, of Luther's perspective, but to tamper with the traditional selection of the holy writings was one step too far. Again, even though Luther could say some very critical things of books like James, he shrank, he stepped back from omitting them from Scripture. Accordingly then, I will argue that yes, the treasure of Timothy ultimately overrides the trouble it causes. But, if I may quote the second greatest story ever told, Star Wars, the approach will not be easy we must first clear aside, or at least address, the stumbling blocks I have already mentioned. The disparaging attitude 1 Timothy takes toward women. The proof 2 Timothy supposedly provides regarding the infallibility of Scripture. And the license 2 Timothy apparently gives to kings and other people in authority like Vladimir Putin to act however they please, knowing that we as Christians will pray for and support them no matter what. We have to address these. Second, if we are to guard and protect the good treasure 2 Timothy 1.14 mentions, we have to determine what it is. What are we guarding? What are we protecting? Third and finally, having addressed the three stumbling blocks I mentioned and having defined what the meaning of the good treasure uh, is that God calls us to protect, each of us must ask ourselves, am I up to the task? What can I do to ensure that others hear the gospel that has been entrusted to us? This means, and I admit, we have a little work ahead of us this morning. So let's ask God for help. Would you pray with me? Good and gracious God, 
Open our ears this morning to the hearing of your gospel. Give us the power to know, trust, and believe in what Ephesians 1.13 calls your word of truth. That is, the gospel of your salvation in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Last week, we discussed five misconceptions about the Bible in our adult forum. It was fun. The first of these, not so fun, is that Paul was a misogynist because of what he said about women needing to keep quiet according to 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, a reading I read a few moments ago. But this really seems strange for Paul to say. For one thing, he proclaimed that all people are one in Christ, according to Galatians 3.28, that Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, presumably enjoy equal status in the body of the risen one. For another, he counted as prominent among the apostles and co-workers in Christ a variety of women throughout his original letters, including Romans chapter 16. Why then would Paul say something so contradictory about women in 1 Timothy? Well, as biblical scholars have been saying for nearly 200 years now, Paul probably didn't write it. More likely, and this was not uncommon in the ancient world, or at least unheard of, a loyal disciple or student of Paul's attributed the letter to him. Indeed, even a cursory glance at our second reading shows the plausibility of such a claim. Take a look at verse 5, if you will. According to this verse, the faith that Timothy, presumably now a young man who can read, inherited has existed not for one, not for two, but for three generations. If we take a generation to mean 15 to 20 years, that would put the composition of 2 Timothy in the last quarter of the first century somewhere between 75 and 90 AD. But here's the problem. Modern biblical scholars agree with Christian tradition that Paul died somewhere in the mid-60s. The great apostle accordingly couldn't have written the letter. Why? He was dead. We have other clues in the text as well. Notice now in verse 13 the reference to sound teaching or doctrine. This implies that the core views of the early Christians had time to crystallize into doctrines defended by the emerging institution of the church. Such language, interestingly enough, appears only in later letters most scholars believe Paul did not write. Ephesians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus. In the letters that are uncontestably written by Paul, the language of sound doctrine or teaching never appears. Consider finally how Paul in 1 Timothy, that is Paul in quotes, blames Eve for the introduction of sin into the world. All the women in this congregation must have loved hearing that. You're the problem. You're the one who was first deceived. You're the one who is to blame. 
For Adam was formed first, it says, then Eve, and Adam, the man, was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's interesting. Go back to what Paul himself wrote in Romans 5.12, which no scholar disputes as, as inauthentic, and you will learn that sin entered the world not through Eve, but through Adam. Recognizing that Paul himself did not insist that women should be silent or that women brought sin into the world should, I hope, address our first concern about Timothy. In contrast to Paul, First and Second Timothy arose in the context of an increasingly male-led church near the end of the first century, one where men arguably asserted their authority over women, perhaps because they were anxious about some of the women who spoke up in worship. Yikes, watch out for that. The original spirit of the Christian faith, as le at least as we see it in Paul, however, seems to have been far more egalitarian. All, male and female, Paul says, are one in Christ's body. So what about the second stumbling block I mentioned? Is the Bible without error in matters of faith, human history, and science because all scripture is inspired according to 2 Timothy 3.16? Here again, we have to put the text in context. If I'm known for a phrase, I know Pastor Wayne was known for, that's a holy mystery, I think, or uh, place of grace, another one of his phrases. If I'm known for a phrase, I hope it's this. Always put the text in context. Assuming Timothy was written near the end of the first century, the author would have been referring contextually to a much smaller collection of scripture than what we have in the Bible now, namely the Law and the Prophets, which is about two-thirds of the Old Testament. And yes, Mark, that includes the book of Numbers, your favorite book in the entire Bible. That's an inside joke. Most of you know that Numbers is basically a population uh, census uh, taking, which makes for really exciting reading, about as exciting as reading an old phone book. I recommend it to you highly. The rest of the books in the Bible, including the last third of the Old Testament, as well as all the books of the New, had not been officially selected at the time in which 2 Timothy was written. So when it says all scripture, again, it's referring to the first two-thirds of the Old Testament. To say, moreover, that these texts were inspired or God-breathed literally means they give life. Not that God dictated every word to the authors of Scripture like he dictated every word of the Quran to Muhammad according to Muslim belief. No. For Christians, Christ himself is the word of God. The word made flesh, as John 1.14 says. The Bible, in pointing us to him, is the word of God only in a secondary sense. I like to think of the Bible as a kind of John the Baptist in print. Its task, as John did, was to point to Christ, who is the locus of our salvation. 
Now, what about the last of our three concerns that we should, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, pray and give thanks for everyone, including kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Does that mean we should give thanks for Vladimir Putin? The simple answer, I believe, is no. Why? Again, we have to put the text in context. The goal of such praise, I would argue, was for Timothy's audience to be left alone by the governing authorities. This is a survival strategy for Christians living in the midst of periodic persecution. Be quiet. <laughs> Keep your head down. Why draw attention to ourselves, the thinking seems to be, by outwardly criticizing or condemning people in positions of power? Better to pray for them so as not to attract attention to ourselves. That way, 1 Timothy suggests, we may indeed lead the quiet and peaceable life to which God has called each of us. Of course, we may not agree with this strategy employed by the author of 1 Timothy to prevent the persecution of his fellow Christians, especially when times demand that we stand up to the injustices of the state. But at least we can emphasize, this was a tiny band of believers. Timothy is saying, go along to get along. Submit to the authorities insofar as that allows you to continue practicing your faith. Now that we have addressed the trouble, if not with tribbles, at least with First and Second Timothy, let's see if we can recover its treasure. This is the part I've been looking forward to. What is the meaning of the good treasure we are supposed to protect? And are we up to the task? This is also the reason why I shouldn't drink coffee between services. Fortunately, when it comes to the good treasure, the author makes it simple. Take a look, if you will, at verses 9 through 10 in your second reading. There we read neither that Christ was born for us, nor that he died for us. Instead, we see the essence of the good news, something to which our hymnody in the Lutheran tradition gives profound witness insofar as God in Christ overcame death for us purely out of love. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, the text says, but now it has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, and if you have a pencil, I invite you to underline this, who abolished death, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Do you hear that? The Song of Songs in the Hebrew Bible tells us that love is as strong as death, but in Christ, love is stronger than death. Love conquers death. Love wins. Suddenly, the entire New Testament joins in a unanimous chorus. Remember Jesus Christ, the author of 2 Timothy says in chapter 2, verse 8, raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That is my gospel. That is the good news. Death has been swallowed up in victory, the Apostle Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 55. 
Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That is the good news. For I am convinced, the same apostle states in Romans 8.38, that nothing, not even death, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the good news. Paul concludes, For if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, not that he died for your sins here, but that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This message is the good treasure that has been entrusted to each of us. To each one of you this morning who has or will lose someone close, a partner of many years, a mother, a father, a best friend, a brother-in-law, a sister-in-law, a sibling, a son. The message seems clear. Death will not have the last word. You, your loved one, even that tiresome incarnation, your neighbor, will somehow be transformed, raised as Christ was to new life. That's the message. But here's its secret. That transformation in you has already begun. Question then is this. Are you up to the task? You remember the last of my three questions, right? Now that we have set aside or at least addressed our trouble with Timothy, and now that we have defined and received and recovered the good treasure in Timothy, the message of the gospel that God has overcome death in Jesus Christ, what can we do to ensure that others hear this gospel that has been entrusted to each of us? Well, conceptually at least, the answer is simple. We can live the resurrection life. We can be transformed. Each of us through baptism has died to ourselves. We have, as Paul says, been crucified with Christ so that it is no longer we who live, but it is Christ who lives in us. This transformation, this transfiguration is ongoing. It's the constant death of the ego that always gets in the way. The more selfless we become, the more immortality we experience. One of my friends, a Zen priest, likes to say, only the ego wants to get into heaven. Only the ego wishes to preserve itself eternally. Let go of your ego, be crucified with Christ, and raised to new life for others, and you will experience eternity in the here and now. So what does this look like? Just imagine a day in your life where death has truly lost its sting. One day. One where the promise of new life overrides your sorrow, your fear, or your deepest grief. Set aside your doubts and let that be yours, even for a single moment like now. What treasure? Surely the kind that makes Timothy 
worth the trouble. Amen.
Let us confess the words of our faith in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. For the prayers of the church, we invite you to be seated or to kneel, whichever your preference. As scattered grains of wheat are gathered together into one bread, so let us gather our prayers for the church, those in need, and all of God's good creation. We pray for your holy church in every place and for those who serve following the example of Christ. Help them to live by faith and walk by the light of your gospel. Lord, in your mercy. For parts of the world ravaged by natural disaster, especially all of those whose lives have been harmed by Hurricane Ian, Relieve those affected by floods and be with those in other parts of our country and world affected by wildfires, droughts, and earthquakes. Lord, in your mercy. For every nation and for those entrusted with authority, grant our leaders self-discipline in all things and inspire them with love for your people. Lord, in your mercy. For victims of violence, abuse, and neglect, heal those who have been harmed and protect those who are vulnerable. For all who are sick, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For this and every congregation, rekindle your gifts within your people and inspire councils, committees, and individuals to plan and work together that all may know your love. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For whom or what else do the people of God pray? Kind and loving God, we pray for Kyle's family, for Matthew, for Kirsten, for Kathleen for the Porters, for Finley, for Kirsty, for the family of Michael, for the Vega family, for Elena, for the Unseths, for Jessica and her parents, for Christine, for David, for Jim, for Abatash Mulugeta, for Jan, for Richard, for Ben, for Jean, Lee, Barb, Denny, Hildy, Mary, Carol, and Ruth. Lord, in your mercy. 
hear our prayer. In thanksgiving that you have abolished death and for the saints who have died, send your spirit so that we might be witnesses to the good treasure and promise of the resurrection. Lord, in your mercy. Gathered together in the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit, gracious God, we offer these and all our prayers to you through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please rise as you are able. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is our duty and delight that we should everywhere and always offer thanks and praise to you, O God, through Jesus Christ, who calls us to follow his way of humble service and love. And so with the church on earth, all creation and the host of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and gave thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. Again, after supper, he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it for all to drink, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this for the remembrance of me. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. We forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial. Deliver us from evil. The kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. In this place of grace, all baptized Christians are welcome to the table of grace. If you wish to receive a blessing and, uh, as an alternative to Eucharist, when you are up at the rails, simply fold your arms like so. For those of you who are communing from your pew, I invite you at this time to take out your communable and receive accordingly. Christ is among us. Receive 
the bread of life. This is his body given for you. The blood of God shed for you. You may be seated. The ushers will direct you forward to the railing for communion.
Let us pray. Life-giving God, through this meal, you have bandaged our wounds and fed us with your mercy. Now send us forth to live for others, both friend and stranger, that all may come to know your love. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning once again, and welcome to Queen Anne Lutheran Church. It is, as always, a pleasure to see you here. I wanted to highlight just a few announcements before we close uh, our worship service. First, if you're new to the congregation or relatively new, we invite you to fill out a Connect card. That's in the pew in front of you. We also have prayer cards if you wish to fill those out uh, for prayer requests. Uh, Next Sunday uh, is the third and final uh, installment of the series on the Bible we never knew. I'd like to see a big crowd. This one is on sex in the Bible. How could you not be there? I might even have donuts for you. And it's not going to be me. You've heard me speak enough. We have a guest professor coming from Seattle Pacific University who is going to talk about this topic and hopefully illuminate us uh, accordingly. So that's next Sunday uh, at 9 a.m., Sex in the Bible, as requested uh, for our forum series. Today, and I've been told, Tom and Jim, it's okay to announce this? Give me a thumbs up. Okay. Uh, Today, after 10.30, we are celebrating Jean McLaughlin's 90th birthday at coffee hour. We hope you can stay, give best wishes to Jean, and of course, have cake. There's a big card for you to sign, uh, or you are also, of course, welcome to drop off your own card in the basket there. So, happy birthday, Jean. It is wonderful to have you here with us today, and all the best wishes for for, uh, your special birthday. A few other announcements. Uh, We are still seeking, (coughs) excuse me, a children's ministry coordinator. So if you know of anybody, please spread the word. Uh, Details are in your bulletin there. And finally, um, office hours are, uh, uh, as noted in the um, bulletin, if you wish, however, to meet with Kyle, me, Kyle or me, then please, of course, always know that you are welcome uh, outside of those hours to set up an appointment. Are there any other announcements for the good of the congregation? Then please rise as you are able for our closing blessing. Remember the promise, death will not have the last word. And now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and to be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and grant you peace. Our sending hymn, In Thee is Gladness, is number 867 in the Red Hymnal.